podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. It is the worst football I've ever seen. I'm coming back to England, man, and I'm keeping my titles. I just remember the atmosphere was incredible. I think that was one of the games that I couldn't wait to get out of. That that was a really important moment in winning the bid as well. Yeah, it just puts you on the spot. Like you just kind of done there with me. <laughs> At least you joined in. Hello and welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast, the only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic students who interview some of the biggest names in sport. This podcast has been set up by Technolwood School and our aim is to teach our students new skills through podcasting. Each week we chat to famous sportsmen and women from around the world. We delve deep into their sporting careers, their highs and lows, and what makes them one of the best athletes in their sport. All of our students' hard work and dedication has paid off, as we have recently won a Global Sports Podcast Award for the Best Equality in Social Sports Podcast. That's enough from me. I'm going to hand you over to the stars of the show, which are our students who host the podcast, and I will let them introduce today's guest. Thank you. Tenorwood School is a school for autistic children and young adults, and we have set this podcast up to provide our pupils with a fantastic opportunity to develop a range of skills whilst interviewing top sportsmen and women for a variety of different sports. Joining us today on the TWS Sports Podcast is a former professional football player. He has played for Leeds, Spurs, Blackburn and England. Welcome to the podcast, Paul Robinson. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Nice to meet you both this morning. We would like to start our podcast with some quick fire questions before we start talking about your career. Are you ready? It depends. <laughs> <laughs> Do my best. Who is the most famous person in your phone book? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, probably some of the former England boys that I played with. Uh, to make it off the top of my head, uh, Rio Ferdinand. If you could trade lives with anyone for a day, who would it be and why? I'm the most frustrated golfer in the world. I love golf, so I'd love to have been Tiger Woods for a day. Um, to play sort of sport like that at, to, to that level would have been incredible. So, yeah, definitely Tiger Woods are one of the top golfers. And last, last one of these questions, if you could go back to one day in your life, what would it be and why? Um, that's a good question, a really good question, because um, during our career, we're very fortunate to, to, to have a lot of good moments, uh, a lot of good moments in the family life as well probably the birth of my first child and make, making my England debut, something along those lines, probably. We want to take you back to the beginning and talk about your childhood. What are your memories of growing up and did you always want to be a footballer? Uh, yeah, I, I grew up in a place called Beverly, which is just outside Hull, where my parents still live. Um, I went to a school called Beverly Grammar School started playing football for under 10s when I was actually eight years old. Um, so I was always a big lad. <clears throat> so we went for trials and the, the manager sat everybody down and said, look, who have we got? What type of players have we got? Said, how many strikers sit there? Midfielders sit there? Anybody want to be a goalkeeper? And nobody put the hand up. And I'm thinking, I'm eight years old. This lot are all 10. I've got a chance here if I put my hand up. So I put my hand up and that's how I started playing in goal. Um, I always played in goal uh, above my age, but for my own age group at school, I, I always played outfield. I used to love all sports. I played rugby, I played cricket, I played football. We did a bit of hockey at school as well. But it got to a point where about 14 or 15, the, the, the guys at Leeds weren't happy with me playing cricket and bending my fingers back every other week and not able to play football. 
Do you think what you said there, Paul, is, is kind of what lots of goalkeepers say <laughs> that when they started off as goalkeeper, they were only in goals because no one else wanted to be in goals. Um, <laughs> do you think that's kind of changing? Do you think more people, more children growing up want to be a goalkeeper or do they still want to be a striker? I think massively it's changed. I think, you know, not necessarily. I think it was a case for me. I, I loved playing outfield as well. But it got to a point at the age I was, it was if you want to be serious in progressive football, stick to what you're good at type thing. But I think the stigma around goalkeepers has changed now and the role of a goalkeeper has hugely changed. You look at Edison, you look at Allison. I mean, that those type of players now, the way that the game's evolved and the way that they play. I mean, Edison could play centre midfield in most teams. And the role that they've got now, it's, it's a lot cooler to be a goalkeeper doing Cruyff turns in, in your own goal line and, and playing <laughs> from the back. Rather than when we first started, it was put the ball down on the six-yard line and kick it as far as you can. You joined Leeds at the age of 16. What are your memories of joining the club? <clears throat> I had a good time at Leeds. I was there as a schoolboy as well. Um, so I was at York City until I was 14. And then I signed for Leeds when I think it was about 13 or 14, I think it was, and came through the youth ranks at Leeds. And then I was fortunate enough to, to get offered a contract when I left school, um, an apprentice contract, what they called it back then. So I was on £37 a week for cleaning boots, cleaning dressing rooms and training twice a day. <laughs> um, and when, you, when you look at it, it's all you ever wanted to do. You know, when you're in, in that system, you want to become a professional footballer and you want to get that first contract. Um, and it was a huge honour for me. And looking back and sitting, putting it into perspective, it's a chance that you take at that stage of your life. But there's not many people get that chance. So it was a fantastic opportunity for me. I left school. I signed a two-year contract with a one-year promise of a pro at the end of that. But did very well in the first year. Um, we won the Youth Cup that year. And all our apprentice contracts got ripped up and we got put on professional contracts at 17. So it was a really good start for me. And you played in that early time at Leeds, you played with some great players, um, Ferdinand, Robbie Keane, um, Woodgate, Viduka, Kewell, Nigel Martin. What was it like to play with, play with these players at such a young age? I suppose some of them players would have been similar age to you as well. We were a young fearless team and we were a lot of players that were on the upward curve and a lot of the pressures that come with playing professional football and you get scarred through your career because you realise you know that the pressure that's on you and the criticism that comes with it and if you're not performing to a certain level then you understand the pressures of being a footballer whereas the age that we were all at at that time we were young we were fearless we were, we were taking on some of the best teams in Europe some of the best teams in the world and we were winning you know we went to the San Siro and got results Beat, you know, drew the likes of Barcelona, beat Lazio, AC Milan and, and teams like that. And we, were, we were competing well above where we should have been, but it was a young, fearless team. Uh, it was a hungry team. It was just a great dressing room to be a part of, really. You played the Champions League against Barcelona. What was that like? I think that was the making of my career, in all honesty. I think I was given an opportunity in the first team and that was the, the first game where... People turned around and went, oh, who is this kid? This kid can play in goal. He's not too bad. I think I was 17 or 18. I was given the opportunity. And still to this day, it's probably one of the best games that I've ever played. And I, I, I put a lot of building my career on, on the back of that performance. I was given an opportunity and a platform to show people what I could do. And, and that night was probably the best night of my, my fledgling career. Was that at Ellen Road or the New, <clears throat> new Camp? It was at Ellen Road, the, the, the game that we're talking about. Um, and the, it was Rivaldo that was playing. And I always remember in the press afterwards, the game was, was uh, billed as Robinson versus Rivaldo because I kept him out for 92 minutes and then they equalised. It was one all. We were winning for 92 minutes and equalised in the 92nd minute, which, you know, it was, that was, it was a bit heart-wrenching at the time, but it, it was a fantastic result. I want to take you back to the League Cup match against Swindon Town. 
Leeds have a cor- corner in the last minute. Can you tell us what happened? Well, we were really struggling at that point with Leeds um, in the league. We were losing players. The financial situation was well documented. And it was looking like we were going to get knocked out of the cup by a, a team that was, I think, one or two leagues lower than us. It was it was 2-1. It was in injury time. So I've looked over to the bench at Peter Reid, who didn't even look at me. I don't even think he wanted me to go up. He didn't look at me. So I just stood <laughs> upon myself and I went. And then the first corner, the lads played short and it went out for another corner. And then I'm, I'm caught in no man's land. I'm thinking, well, I look back at the goal. I thought, I'm not running all the way back there again. And it was nearly out of time. So I stayed up in the box uh, and the cross came in. And I managed to get a header uh, and equalised and been a frustrated centre-forward like a lot of goalkeepers. It was an unbelievable moment. Though all the all the saves that you can make as a goalkeeper, all the penalty saves you can make, no feeling that you're getting goal ever comes like scoring a goal. It was an incredible feeling. Um, we went on to win that match on penalties, uh, saved a couple of penalties. It was a bit of a Roy the Rovers moment for me that night. I just watched that, the clip um, <clears throat> just before we started talking to you. And it was a great header as well. It wasn't just a... A simple header, front post, flick, flick yeah, back yeah. post. I'm run to the near post, header <laughs> to the far post. But as I say, we're all frustrated strikers as goalkeepers. But the, the beauty of it is we all get to shoot against each other in training because we obviously train on our own as goalkeepers. So the, 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 we, we join in with the outfield squad later on during the session. So we've got to provide the ammunition for the goalkeepers. So when we're doing crossing against each other, the other goalkeepers are obviously in the box trying to recreate the, the same situation. So we do get an opportunity to do a little bit of finishing. <laughs> Leeds got relegated in the 2003-2004 season. How did a, t- a team with so many top players get relegated? Because we lost a lot of them in the in the two seasons leading up to that season. And I think the, the club was in huge financial strain and it got to the point where you were coming into training at times and you didn't know who was going to be there. I think it ended up as me, Mark Viduka and Alan Smith there that left from, from the original group, which was almost 18 months prior to that we were in the Champions League. Um, and it was it was a very sad state for the, for the way that the club ended. We ended up from, you know, Champions League semi-final to getting relegated at Bolton with a team full of low knees, patched up team, half of whom we didn't recognise. And it was it was a difficult situation. And I think that whole season, we, we were lucky to survive the season before, in all honesty. Peter Reid came in and he kept us up. <clears throat> we got a fantastic win away at Arsenal the year before, which kept us in the Premier League. And then the season after, it just proved, you know, one step too far with all the problems that were going on off the field. We couldn't keep a, a playing squad together. Am I right in thinking, I'm on my, my memory might be wrong, was Peter Ridsdale in charge at this time? Peter Ridsdale was in charge um, halfway through the decline. But then I think the, the financial problems saw the end of him at the club. Mm. He was moved on and we had three or four different chairmen. Um, people who weren't really football people making decisions at the club. People were put on the board uh, in charge of the club who didn't really understand the the ins and outs and the day-to-day of a football club. I know we obviously had the administrators in there at times. It was that bad, you know, we've, we've seen other clubs do it, but we had to defer wages. The club couldn't afford to pay our wages at the end of every month. So we'd go two or three months without wages. We'd agree to sign them off. The PFA would subsidise us as wage, you know, our wages. And it really was a, a, a difficult time for the club. So how, as a, as a player then, does that obviously must affect your, your performance stuff on the pitch or do you kind of not think about that side of the, side of the club? You do. It affects you, it affects you massively because it's every, every newspaper you pick up or every t- TV channel, sports channel you put on, it, it's there. And it affected us more in the dressing room because we didn't know who was going to be there from one day to the next. And obviously not being paid as a player, and it's, it's still a young player at that, 
that point, listen, you get financially rewarded extremely well, but we've all got bills to pay. We've all got families to keep. And at that, you've got mortgages to pay. You've got your, 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 your household bills to pay. And if you're not paid for two or three months, it's, it's a difficult situation for somebody so young to handle. I mean, the older lads are obviously in, in a lot better position than we were. But it was it was affecting your your, your mindset um, and training on a day to day basis, and you could see players there that didn't want to be there and would, would jump in ship if you like. After that season, Leeds had a lot of difficult seasons in the lower division. Why did it take so long for Leeds to return to the Premier League? A lot of seasons, sixteen to be precise. Not that I was counting. Uh, <laughs> It wasn't just the championship either, was it? They fell fell to, to, to deeper depth than that, and you, it was it was unthinkable. I think there was a lot of growth mismanagement. Uh, I think there was a lot of players and managers who represented that club who didn't de- deserve to represent the club. You look how big that the club is, and you look where it is now, and the type of players that it can attract. You think you know five or six years ago we were in League Two, and some of the names that were you know, managing the club that were playing for the club, it was almost unthinkable where the depth that the club fell to. <clears throat> Very difficult when you fall out of the Premier League, you get the parachute payment for two years. We knew the financial strains on Leeds anyway. Very rarely, if you don't get back up in the first two years, do you get back up in any time soon. You look at the likes of Blackburn, for example, that I played for that went down again, that are still in the Championship. Nottingham Forest, teams like that, huge teams in the Championship, that if you don't immediately make a return to the Premier League, it's a very, very hard league to get out of. I want to ask, I don't know if you might not remember this game. I'm not even sure if you played. Um, but I'm a Cardiff City fan. And I, my first memory of going to watch Cardiff was against Leeds in the 2001 FA Cup third round. That Cardiff won 2-1. Did you play in that game? I can't remember if you did or not. The bench, I think. The atmosphere, I, just, I just remember the atmosphere was incredible. And there was, there was a bit of history there between the two sets of fans as well. And it wasn't a very nice atmosphere. Yeah. I think that was one of the games that I couldn't wait to get out of. <laughs> That was one of my first experiences uh, at Ninian Park. I was thir- 12, 13, and I always remember I was so yeah scared. Yeah. Really, it was a horrible, horrible atmosphere. Um, I think, yeah, Cardiff won in the last minute or so, and and yeah, it was very, very scary as a young child. Very, yeah, I mean, the atmosphere is fantastic. I mean, you look at the Wales game the other night in the, in the Cardiff Stadium, you look at the, the Welsh support, and it's incredible. But I think that, that game, particularly the two sets of fans, it kind of boiled over a little bit to how football used to be back in the 70s. And it wasn't a pleasant experience, that game. In February 2003, you made your England debut against Australia. What are your memories of that? It was at Upton Park, West Ham's old ground. Um, and it was, a, it was a time where there was a lot of us good youngsters coming through at the same time. And Sven Goran Eriksson was in charge. And he decided to make 11 changes at half-time, which was quite uh, obviously unheard of. It was a lot made of it in the press. Um, and myself, Wayne Rooney and, and others all came on at half-time and we were so the next generation, if you like. It was a very, very proud moment for me because, you know, from being a, a young kid aspiring to be a footballer, you always dream of playing for your country. You always play in the garden and you kick the ball against the wall and you pretend to be your heroes. But to actually pull on that England jersey and after the game to walk away with your England shirt, there's no prouder moment. And you mentioned Sven Gorn Eriksson there. What was he like as a manager and especially at a time when, was he the first non-English manager to manage England? Yeah, I think he was. What, Sven, was, what was he like? Sven's man management skills were excellent. He, he treated you as adults, as footballers. And being an England manager, it's a very, very difficult task because at that stage, if you won, you were expected to. 
if you lost or you drew, you left yourself wide open for criticism. And I think it was man management is key to being the England manager. I mean, we can all sit here and I think we'd probably pick a similar 11 bar two or three players. So actually putting the players out on the pitch, it's that's not that's the easy part. It's what frame of mind you get those players in and it's keeping the other players, the other 12, 13 players in the squad happy. You've got a squad of 23 players. It's easy to keep 11 happy because you play them every week. It's how you man-manage players. And when you're together in the international setup, you only get three or four days to prepare for a game. So you don't necessarily have to be the best coach in the world. What's the best coach in the world going to teach or coach the best players in this country in three days? He's got to be tactically aware of how to set up a team to beat the opposition and be a very good man-manager. And Sven was that. He was a very good man-manager. You joined Spurs in 2004. How did that move happen and what were your thoughts on joining Spurs? Well, it, it nearly happened in the January before. Um, so all the turmoil that was going on at Leeds. In the in the winter transfer window, I think the two clubs had agreed a fee for me. And I was down at White Hart Lane. I did my medical. I had talks. And it was as the transfer window was closing, the, the agreement was... I didn't want to leave Leeds in the situation they're in because it's my club. I'd been there for a long, long time and we were facing relegation again. I wanted to stay and do everything that I could. So the two clubs had agreed that in January they would agree the fee for me, do my contract and I'd go back to Leeds on loan. But because of the mess that was going on at Leeds, nobody realised that Leeds have got too many players on loan because there was a rule that you can only have a certain amount of, of players on loan. So it got to 11 o'clock. I'm thinking, right, all signed, all done, we're ready to go. Somebody's gone... That can't happen. Leeds have, Leeds have pulled the plug because they've got too many players on loan. So the move was actually done and agreed in January. And I spoke to Daniel Levy, the, the, the Tottenham chairman, and uh, John Alexander, the secretary, who both of them said, shook my hand, wished me all the best for the rest of the season and said, we'll revisit this again in the summer. And they were true to the word, they did. We, we ended up getting relegated, which was difficult at Leeds. But true to the word, they came back and we started off all over again. Martin Joel was the manager of Spurs for the start of your time there. What was he like as a manager? Martin was excellent with his man management skills. Again, I always responded well to, to man managers and managers that us, the door was always open. So if you had a problem, you could always talk to them, whether it was off the field, on the field, in the dressing room, whatever it was, they were, they were good to talk to and they were good, honest people. Martin was an excellent coach. He came in, um, Jacques Santini was there first. I mean, he didn't last very long, only a couple of months. And Martin was seen as one of the, the best coaches and he was a fantastic coach. His football brain was incredible and he was able to transfer that into management. I thoroughly enjoyed playing for Martin. Being a goalkeeper can be a lonely place at times. Talk to us about the training ground. Did the keepers always train on their own? And what does a typical day at the training ground look like for a goalkeeper? Yeah, we always train on our own because we're a bit different. <laughs> we're, a bit different so we're always first out onto the training pitch and we're always last in. So regardless of, of what time training is, you'll always find the goalkeepers out in a far corner of the training ground somewhere, normally surrounded by a big net so the ball doesn't go everywhere when we're doing shooting at each other. Um, but we'll go out beforehand normally consists of, you know, a warm-up, quite often a bit of head tennis, a bit of two-touch, you know, with the, with the feet keeping the ball up. And then you'll do a goalkeeping session, whatever the, the, the goalkeeping coach wants to work on. But obviously the, the sessions are very structured, so the goalkeeping coach will have a meeting with the manager that morning and they'll decide what they want to do in training, what they want to get from the day. So they'll go to the goalkeeper coach and say, look, you've only got half an hour with the goalies this morning because we want to bring him in for team shape at, say, 10 o'clock. 
So then he'd come and find us and we'd go out a little bit early so get a little bit more work done before we went and did the teamwork. Because with goalkeepers, you'll find they like to do the work before because sometimes when you go and work with a team, unless it's shooting, there's a bit of standing around. So it's hard to do your work, go and stand around in team shape and then start again, if you like. So the goalkeepers always like to go out early, get their work done. And then when they go into the teamwork, it's all structured and depending on you know the timings, what the manager and the goalkeeper coach wants. And it's if there's games, you'll, you'll sometimes have a lighter session. You'll sometimes work hard. I mean, if, if we played Saturday to Saturday years ago, so you always knew that Monday afternoon and Tuesday was going to be a hard session. You'd have Wednesday off. Thursday, you'd get back into, you know, get back into your normal work. And Friday would be game prep. As a goalkeeper, Paul, I know majority of your career, you were a number one goalkeeper, either for England or your club. But as a maybe a number two or number three goalkeeper, if you've been that in your career or you know some of your, your teammates have, how what sort of mindset do you need if you're maybe a number three or number two keeper, knowing that you're probably not going to play um, many games? It's a difficult mindset, but it's if you accept the role of a two or a number three and you know where you're at, that's easy to get your head around. You look at Kelleher at Liverpool, he's doing the role extremely well. I wonder how long he can do that role for because once you get a taste of it, you play... You want to keep playing. The hardest thing to be a number two or a number three is when you've been a number one and you still think you are number one. If the manager takes you out and puts you on the bench, like my situation in England when Fabio Capello came in, I wasn't playing particularly well. And at the age that I was at, it was it was clear that I wasn't going to play. I was a number three, a number two or a three. So I'd be sat in the stand watching the game. And at that stage of my career, I didn't want to travel the world sitting in the stand watching an international game because I... You, you, in your head, you're number one for the club and you want to play. And I think the the role of a number two and number three is ideally for a younger goalkeeper or a goalkeeper of experience, like I did at Burnley. That's what I, when I went to Burnley, I signed as, as a number two to mentor Tom Heaton. And it's a role that I, I thoroughly enjoyed doing. But it's one that's is mentally tough because you've got to be prepared, knowing that you're not going to play, but you've got to be prepared to play. It's different now because a lot of the the top Premier League clubs carry two number ones. So you look at the quality that, you, that, the, that the top clubs have got and because they're competing on so many fronts and so many competitions, it's not like before years ago when there was a clear number one and the number two only played if he was injured or suspended. Now there is rotation. And as I say, most of the top clubs carry two number ones. March the 17th, 2007, you played against Watford and you scored another goal. Can you tell us about that goal? That one was a bit lucky. That was the lucky <laughs> um, that was just a big kick down the field. I don't know if you've seen it, but that was a free kick that was given just outside my box. Um, and I think it was Mido that was playing for us at the time. And he was a centre forward who generally didn't move much unless the ball came near him. And I think my, obviously my kick just missed him. And Ben Foster in the Watford goal misjudged it. I think he thought his central defender was going to head it. The, the defender thought that Ben was coming out to get it. And it was just lucky. Um, it took a huge bounce and went in. It was just, it was a very surreal moment, a, a strange moment, but, you know, I enjoy scoring goals. <laughs> I've still got all the kit from that day. It was, it was quite funny, actually. Kept everything. I've got my, well, my dad's got it. He's got the boots, socks, shorts, shirt, everything. And I was just about to leave the ground and the kit man come to me and he went, have you got the ball? I went, no, that's a good point. Anyway, long story short, we had to chase the referee out of the stadium because he put the ball under his arm thinking that'll be a keepsake in years to come. So we <laughs> get the ball back off the referee. You were in a very small group of, of goalkeepers who have scored and especially scored two goals. Is there, which one's your favourite? 
Oh, without a doubt, the Leeds one. I mean, like I said to you there, the Tottenham one was a fluke. It was just a big kick downfield. And I didn't really have time to celebrate it because it was a little bit of embarrassment because it was my mate and goal at the other end. And I didn't realise whether it was going to be an indirect free kick or... It, it, it kind of didn't sink in. But the, the one for Leeds was obviously meant and that was that was a Roy the Rovers moment. But uh, they were both great, but the Leeds one was my favourite. How many times over the last 15 years have you mentioned it to Ben Foster? <laughs> uh, it was quite surreal actually because we, we met up the England squad the week after that so we, we had a good laugh about it because, uh, because I wasn't playing particularly well at the time and when you're England's number one everyone thinks that there's somebody better to do your job as you see now with Jordan Pickford the conversations as who you should be playing and Ben was seen as the young pretender he was seen as the heir to, 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 my, to my throne if you like so it was before that game, it was all built up as the young pretender was going to play, you know, who was going to play for England the week after. And I ended up scoring past him. It was very strange. <laughs> you beat Chelsea in the League Cup final in 2008. What are your memories of that game? Oh, that was one of the best uh, moments of my career. You dream as a kid of climbing the stairs at Wembley and lifting a trophy. Um, that was the only major honour that I won. And I'd have been very, very disappointed if I'd have had the career I had without winning a trophy. Um, and you look what it means to, to a club like Tottenham and you look at the length of time now, a dinosaur like me was the last one to lift the trophy at Wembley for Spurs. So it just shows how hard it is to do. Um, we were playing against the Chelsea side that were better than us, you know, a lot stronger than us. They were they were big favourites in going into that game. We managed to take it to extra time uh, and then Petr Cech decided to punch one off Jonathan Woodgate's head and it went in. And it was, it was unreal. Um, and I knew at that time that I believed in the club because uh, the manager that came in, Wande Ramos, we, we weren't getting on. We, we didn't see eye to eye. I was in and out of the team at times. And I knew come the end of that season, if he was still around, I'd be moving on. And the relationship that I've got and I had with the Spurs fans, it was so nice to be able to give them something back, if you like. I wanted to ask you about the 2006 World Cup in Germany. How did you find out you were selected to go to the World Cup and how nervous were you leading up to the tournament? I think we were all looking forward to it. I think the, the selection process was the same. The manager had a, a PA uh, who works, works for him and with him, staff around him, and they let you know. You, you get to know before the squad's announced on Sky, so you see all the, the names announced on Sky. We probably get to know three or four hours before that, whether it's a direct call to you or to your, your coach at, at, at the club you do get to find out before. And that's with every squad, not just the World Cup squads. But I think in 2006, we were billed as the golden generation. So I think we were, we were going into that World Cup with a lot of expectation and excitement. There was a, a little bit of nerves around, but I think it was more of uh, looking forward to it and can't wait for it to get started, really. You mentioned it there about people say it was the golden generation and you had the likes of yourself, Lampard, Gerrard, Rooney, Beckham, Ferdinand, Terry. Would you agree that you never really reached possibly a potential? I think we could have done in 2006, in hindsight, if we'd have got through those penalties against Portugal. I don't think we played particularly well in that World Cup. I mean, we qualified with ease as we do every year, um, sorry, every four years for the World Cup. But then you look at our performances in, in that World Cup, and I think it wasn't until the Portugal game when Wayne got sent off, we actually pulled together as a group and put in a real performance. And having if we'd have got through that game, hindsight's a great thing in football, but I believe that we could have grow and develop in that short time. Um, I think that talked about Sven and his man management skills, but you look at the way football's developed now and evolved. We played a 4-4-2, regardless of who we were playing against, or at that time it was 4-4-2. And the quality of players that we had 
it wasn't adapting the system to to get the best out of the players we had. It was putting the players into a 4-4-2 system. So, I mean, we had Paul Scholes on the left wing at times, Joe Cole on the left wing, you know, Wayne Rooney, Michael Owen up front and Beckham on the right and Frank and Stephen in the middle. And it wasn't necessarily the right system for the players that we had. It was sometimes square pegs in round holes. And I believe that the, the quality was there, that the players' attitude was absolutely there. But I think if if you put that team now into modern day formations, into modern day structures in a different formation, I think it would have achieved a lot more. England got out of the world group stage, uh, the Sorry. group stage at the World Cup. Did you and the team feel confident heading into the knockout stages? I think we knew that there was more to come because, as like I said, it touched on there, we hadn't played particularly well. Um, we'd, we'd kind of grown into the tournament. It was, I think we, we won the first game 1-0 and it was, you know, we, we, we were getting better and growing into the tournament. And I think that's something that we were, we were looking forward to, 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 to reaching different levels, let's say, because we knew that we could do better. Here at the Amethyst Academies Trust, we are incredibly ambitious for our schools and our pupils, and we believe that there is no ceiling on what can be achieved by anyone. Working in partnership with Penhall School and Tetnell Wood School, we are proposing to refurbish the beautiful Penhall Mansion, a grade two-star listed building in Wolverhampton, into an exciting and professional specialist vocational college for young people aged 14 to 19 with special educational needs and disabilities. Changing the face of employability for young people with SEND, the college will offer specialist career pathways and in-house vocational learning experiences for students that will be open to the public. Students will be able to develop their skills, knowledge and flourish in confidence across a wide range of audiences. We need to raise £400,000 to refurbish the mansion and provide accessible and stimulated learning and working spaces for students and the community. We are relying on public donations, business relationships and support, no matter how big or small, to make this college a reality for our students. Donate today. Go to www.sedgwick.aatrust.co.uk Sedgwick College. Discover bright futures. You played Portugal in the quarterfinals and lost on penalties. What are your memories of that game? I was very confident going into the penalties because myself with my goalkeeper coach at the time, Mike Clements, you obviously, the outfielders work on penalties, but we do a lot in the video rooms with the penalties. So you, the, the, the technology that's available now, you can watch every single penalty that anyone's ever taken. So the research in the weeks leading up to the, the, the games that we were playing. So going into that Portugal game, if it, was, it went to a penalty shooter, I'm thinking, great, this is my time. This is, this is where I'm going to shine. I know who's coming up what order they're coming up in and which way is their favourite penalty. So we, we, we look at it and you analyse it. There's no point in watching a player's penalty when it's 3-0. Their team's winning 3-0 and it's the last minute because they can change, it's relaxed. You, you need to watch penalties when players are in a pressure situation where it's 90th minute, it's 0-0, they have to score to win or their previous shootouts. So you find what they call the safety penalty, if you like. So you, you analyse that and you go with percentages and you, you work out who's who's going where and what's their safety penalty. But the thing now is more than ever, they know that you've done this homework. They know that you've got this information and you know that they know. So it's never more of a modern game than ever. So it's like the, the last penalty in that shootout, for example, Ronaldo, all the work, all the stuff we do, his favourite penalty is whipped across me. 
high to my right. He knew that I knew that. I knew that he knew that. And it was just a mind game. I went high to my right. He went high to my left. And it's, it is, it's now more of a mind game than ever. But going into that penalty shootout, I was so confident because of the work that I'd done leading up into it. In that game, Wayne Rooney got sent off for stamping on a player. Do you think that were, was too much pressure on Rooney in that tournament? I think there was a lot of pressure on all of us, to be honest. And I think there was a lot of expectation. Rightly so, because we, we'd qualified so well and the players that we had um, but there's always expectation. And when you're one of, if not the best player in Wayne's case, there's always going to be expectation. There's always going to be expectation for him to score goals. And I think it's something he's had to deal with throughout his career. You mentioned that. So I want to go back to the, the penalties, Paul. And whenever you've been in a penalty shootout in your career, you see now goalkeepers have information on their water bottles and things like that. Would you always know before the game which way you're going to dive or would you ever make the mind up as the players running up, yeah, quite often you do. You get an instinct, and a, and a, you just something tells you go the other way, or so there's so something happens. There's there's one trick that I always used to have, and a lot of the goalkeepers use it, and and strikers don't know it, but subconsciously when they walk up initially to put the ball on the spot, they plant their standing foot where they're going to kick the ball. So as they're bending down to put the ball on the spot, if you look at their standing foot, if they're going to go across you that way and open their foot up. Their, their left foot, if they're a right-footed player, will generally be pointing in the same way. Whereas if they're going to whip it across you, their body will be square and the foot will be the other way. Sometimes that works, sometimes that doesn't work. But it's, that's just there's tiny little margins that goalkeepers look for. But like I say to you now, it's more of a mind game than ever. High down the middle still wins every time. <laughs> and you look at people now, but strikers now, you look at like Jorginho with his kind of run at Paul Pogba when he takes two minutes to kick the ball. People try and trick the keeper. Do you any tricks like that tend to work? And you look at Jorginho, who very, really misses. Drives me mad. Absolutely drives me mad when you see Pogba taking 10 minutes to try and take a penalty. It's, it's only him that looks silly when it doesn't work. I mean, the, the goal is that big. If you practice kicking a ball, we used to, when we used to do it with England, I used to say to the lads, I said, look, tell me where you're going. Tell me high, low, wherever it's going to go. I won't go until you've kicked it. So they know that they've got to hit that spot every time because I know where they're going and I'm going to go full length after it. If I go full length after it, after they've kicked it and I still can't get it, they're practising the right thing. Practice hitting the corners, practice hitting the corners hard. Or like I say to you, straight down the middle works every single time. High up in the middle if you've got the, if you've got the guts to do it, the penalty straight there. Because no goalkeeper is going to stand still or very, very rarely will you get a goalkeeper that stands still. As a goalkeeper, there is a lot of pressure on you to to not make mistakes, but sadly, they do do happen. What's the biggest mistake against? So was. Was that? So was that? Was that mistake against Croatia? Croatia. What are your missed? Where you missed the ball? Your biggest mistake, and how did you feel? You know what? I still, I'll still tell you now. That's not a mistake because if that ball was in the same place, I'd still try and kick it. It hit the ground on <laughs> my foot. It was Gary Neville's fault. You should be. <laughs> you pass back to the goalkeeper outside the goal in case anything happens. That was what it used to be in those days. No, the Croatia game. I got a lot of a lot of criticism and it affected me for a long, long time after that. And you know, mentally, it was very tough to cope with because, like, still to this day, like I say to you, he's rolled the ball back to me. I'd still try and kick the ball in exactly the same way and it hit the grass and went over my foot. So I spoke to my missus at the time after the game. I, other than that, I played okay in the game. And she's like, 
why are you what, what's wrong are you all right i'm like yeah i'm fine why shouldn't i be she went you don't know what's going on here the the, the aura that was fuss that was been made of it do you know what i mean so i wasn't quite aware of what i was going to come back home to um that was probably the toughest point in my career really tough point in my career um if i could change it in any way i, I would love to have done it but it affects you that's you know i said to you before about players been scarred and understanding about criticism my career to that point had always been on an upward curve. I've done at Leeds, I've done well. We played in the Champions League. I got my move to Tottenham, I'd done well. I'd come into the England team. Everything about my career was positive. Then all of a sudden that happened and it was just like, deal with that. And it's a very, very difficult situation to deal with because nobody teaches you how to do it. Well, in the record books, it'll always be down as a Gary Neville on goal. Yeah, I didn't touch it. I was nowhere near it. <laughs> <laughs> in 2008, you left Spurs to join Blackburn. How did that move come about and why did you decide to leave Spurs? Well, at the time, um, like I said to you, after that England situation in Croatia, my form and confidence suffered a lot. And then we got a manager into, into Tottenham one day, Ramos, who, like I spoke to you before about man management, these, the man management skills for me weren't there. He took me out of the team, didn't explain to me why. I'd knock on his door and ask him what I had to do to get back into the team. Wouldn't understand me, but could understand when he wanted to tell me something. Um, he'd pull me out for certain games, he'd leave me out of the team and then a big game would come round and he'd put me back in the team. Yes, I wasn't playing great. My performances and confidence wasn't at a level it should have been at, but it wasn't going to come back the way that he was treating me. And as long as he was the manager there, I, I was always going to leave because I was at the stage of my career where I wasn't ready to, to sit and watch football. I wanted to carry on playing and I wanted to go and, and continue playing. In hindsight, Harry Redknapp came in three months after one day Ramos didn't last very long and Harry was the type of manager that I think I would have enjoyed playing for. But again, in football, hindsight's a great thing. I went to Blackburn. I ended up at Blackburn. Um, there was two clubs that were interested in me, Aston Villa and, and Blackburn. Um, and what happened was Brad Friedel ended up going to Aston Villa and that's how I ended up going to Blackburn. You mentioned as well, um, when Fabio Capello came in, he, you, he didn't have the greatest relationships with you, with you, and he left you at the team quite a lot for England. What was your relationship like with Fabio, and um, how did kind of your end to your England career come about? It was a difficult one with Fabio because that door was never open. It was always his way or the highway, and there was no kind of dialogue between him and the players. And it became, you know, you had to go down for dinner all dressed in the same tracksuit, and you couldn't leave until the last person had finished dinner. It was a dictatorship, um, and it wasn't an environment that I enjoyed being in. And like I say, if, if I wasn't going to be playing, it's not somewhere that I, I, I would have enjoyed being. So you'd, you'd go and ask him or try and talk to him and you, you didn't get a lot back from him. And I think there's there's other players that found that as well. Do you feel as an England player, like you played under Sven-Gorn Eriksson and Capello, do you feel that any national job should be, the manager should be that nationality? And does it affect a team when a different nationality coach comes in? I don't think it affects the team, no. But I'm, I'm a very proud, passionate Englishman and I, I believe personally that the manager should be English. Yes, I do. And I think that changed my opinion when Sven came in because I saw how it could be done differently and how it didn't affect his, his passion for the team or wanting the team to win and succeed because he was a different nationality. And I saw that firsthand for myself. But if you ask me the question of do I think the England manager should be English, absolutely, yes, I do. You had a good time at Blackburn but became too sad at end where you weren't selected after and left on the bench. Did it frustrate you how your time ended up with Blackburn? 
It did frustrate me, yeah. And I, I, because I think it wasn't to do with football and ability. It was, again, it was a similar situation to Leeds. There was a, a financial situation that the club was in as well at the time and was struggling. So I, I had a, a, a real bad back at the time. I was struggling with sciatica, um, which was basically, it wasn't back pain. It was all down my hamstring and through my leg that was coming from. I had a trapped nerve in my back. So I went and had that removed. I had a, a small operation, had that removed. And unfortunately for me, I got a blood clot in my lung the week after that operation, a complete freak, a 0.0% chance after an operation. And unfortunately, that happened to me. So at that time at Blackburn, I managed to get myself fit, get myself back into the first team. And then I was treated the way that I was. I had, I had seven years at Blackburn. Six of them were extremely happy. I really loved my time there. How it ended for me at Blackburn was a little bit sour, yeah? The manager was like, can't play you, but I'm not going to drag you around the country sitting you on the bench. So I ended up just pop going in two or three days a week to play badminton with a physio because I was 34 at the time. And I think they, they took me out in the Jan, in before January thinking that I would leave if I wasn't going to play. And at that time of my career, in that stage of my career, and especially after everything that had just gone on in my life, I was lucky to even still be there, never mind to have a contract. And regardless of what I did after that, I was never going to get a, a contract like that. So for six months, it was, it was a difficult six months because I wasn't playing football and I completely fell out of love with football. And that's when my Blackburn contract came to an end. In my head, I was finished. I was done. I was hanging my boots up. And I had, I think it was eight months off, seven or eight months off after I finished at Blackburn. And then I sat down with the missus and said, look, if I want to do this again, I can't do this when I'm 40. I can't do this when I'm 42. I don't want my career to end how it did. So that's when I, I got myself fit and, and went back training again with, with Nottingham Forest and my old goalkeeper coach who was at Leeds. Um, it was quite sad, actually, because I asked the, the Leeds manager at the time, we talked about where Leeds were and people who had been in charge of that club who shouldn't have been and played for the club. A man called Steve Evans was in charge at Leeds at the time. And I, I lived 10 minutes from the training ground. And my agent phoned him up and said, look, can Paul come in, use the facilities, train with the young kids, train with the, you know, the academy goalkeepers and get fit again? Turned around and went, nah, sorry, we don't do that here. So I ended up training at Nottingham Forest, my old coach, Steve Sutton. And I was going to sign for Nottingham Forest, but they were transfer embargoed at the time. So Dougie Friedman had to clear one of the younger goalkeepers out of the squad for me to sign. And before I signed at Forest, Sean Dice rang me up and he just said, I hear you training again. Are you fit? Can you come and have a word with me? So I went to see him on the Monday and had a couple of hours in the office, signed a six-month contract. And that, that's, that's how I got back into it. In 2017, after a short spell with Burnley, you retired. Why did you decide to retire? Because my back went again. I was fit and I was enjoying it. Um, the championship, the first six months, we got promoted out of the championship. And then the next season, Sean asked me to sign again. I had a really good relationship with the goalkeeper coach there, with Tom Heaton. It was a real close group of us. And we'd had success in the championship. And he wanted me to stay on for another year. And it was, it was great. I got to play in the Premiership again at 37. Played a couple of games in the Premier League when Tom was injured. And it was a fantastic club to be part of. And I really enjoyed it. It reignited my love for football, being there again, just the way that they treated you, the, the way that they trained every day, the ethos that they had there. It really is a well-run, fantastic football club. And towards the end of that second season, that's when my back started to go again. The operation, it went, whenever someone messes with your back, it's, it's never going to be ideal. Um, and the, the demands of being a Premier League footballer that it was putting on my back every day, it was no good. So I missed the last four or five games of that season. And I said to him, I said, so Gaffer, my back's gone. He said, I said, I think that's me done. And he went, all right, go away in the summer. He said, I want you again next year. So I'm thinking, I'm not sure I can do this. <laughs> I said, all right, the contract there, go away in the summer, give me a ring in a couple of weeks. 
So I went away with the family and anyway, it, it didn't improve. And he said, look, well, give me a ring week before we come back for pre-season. But he could basically give me every single chance to be able to do another year. He wanted me for another year. But I wasn't going to just sit there and, and be a parasite and take the money because I knew at that time I was done. I played in the Premier League again at 37. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And that was the time for me to go. So looking back on your career, when would you say you were at your peak? When was peak Paul Robinson? Oh, Tottenham, without a shadow of a doubt. I think to, towards the end of my time at Leeds and my, my four, four, four and a half years at Spurs was, was the best. Um, I was most confident. I was playing extremely well. Got in the England side. Um, Enjoyment-wise, I enjoyed every single club I've been at. I had a great relationship with the staff, with the fans, everywhere that I've been. But I think actually performance-wise, my best time of my career was the time I was in London with Tottenham. And every week on the podcast, we ask our previous guests to think of a question for our next guest. Um, but they don't know who the next guest is. So last week, we spoke to the president of Matchroom Sport, Barry Hearn. And he asked a question, not knowing it was to you, but his question was... Ask our next guest what gets him out of bed every morning. So still, now you've retired, Paul, what gets you out of bed every morning? Um, my family, my, my work. I work a lot in the media. I work for different media outlets. And I, I love being up and I love being active. I, I can't sit around doing nothing. I'm, I'm a 6.30, 7 o'clock every day. And the time I get with my boy now, my boy's 14, my daughter's 18. And so I have the opportunity to go to every single rugby match he's got a school, every single hockey match he's got a school, but to put my work in and around that. I work a lot in studios in London. I work in Qatar for a broadcasting company. So I spend a bit of time out of the country as well. But I, I like to keep myself busy and especially when the sun's shining, there's one thing that gets me out of bed, it's the golf course. <laughs> so before we finish, Paul, we would like to you to do the same thing. Could we think of could you think of a question that we could ask our next guest? However, we are not going to tell you who our next guest is. It can be any question at all. That is a very, very good question. And it's hard to think of a question when you don't know who's coming, isn't it? What is the most bizarre thing that's ever happened to you in a sporting sense? I'd just like to say a big thank you again to everyone who's listening to our podcast. We would really appreciate it. Please continue to leave reviews and pass our podcast on to your friends and family. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk, chat with us today, Paul. We really enjoyed speaking with you and it means so much to us as a podcast and school to be able to have this opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you for having me and I wish you all the luck in the world with your podcast and I hope you keep getting some top guests. See you later. See you guys. Bye. Yeah. So Harvey, Paul's just gone. Harvey, how do you feel that episode went? I think that one went really well. I think my reading was a little bit better than last time. Um, it's coming on quite well this time. So I'm proud of myself. Yeah, good. Is there a certain thing or story that Paul said that you liked most? Not particularly, no. Um, I can't really think of anything off the top of head, but I really liked um, when he played for Spurs. That was my favourite part, when he was speaking about Spurs and everything. Are you a football fan? I am a football fan. I do support Wolves. Fab. Harvey, again, I think this is your fourth or fifth episode and you did yeah. fantastic. So every week, I can, as you said, your reading's improving and your speaking and listening skills are improving. So yeah. amazing work, mate. Well done. Keep it thank up. you very much. And thank you so much to everyone for listening to another episode of the podcast and we will see you all next week. Goodbye. The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. 
This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism, and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine. Sports Social Podcast Network.